from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're highlighting two of this summer's most anticipated new releases. First up, we'll go to a conversation with Christopher Nolan, who joined us to discuss his World War II epic, Dunkirk. Then, we'll go to a Q&A following this week's preview screening of Landline, Gillian Robespierre's highly anticipated follow-up to 2014's new director's new film selection, Obvious Child. Both Dunkirk and Landline open in theaters this weekend. Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk delivers a thrilling and immersive experience due to its gifted ensemble cast and larger-than-life cinematography, shot utilizing a mixture of IMAX and 65mm. Earlier this week, Nolan joined us here at the Film Society to present a 70mm print of the film and discuss it afterwards. The conversation was moderated by our deputy director, Eugene Hernandez. Let's go to that now. Nice reaction. Very nice. Thank you. Thinking about just the use of this IMAX format, I mean, you, you've used this format before, but you're using it in such a different way with Dunkirk. Maybe just to give us sort of a foundational understanding of some of the different formats you're using, um, the cameras you're using, just to get a sense of... Sure. I mean, I mean IMAX film uh, is the highest resolution imaging format that's ever been devised. It was actually invented year before I was born. It's been with us a long time. Um, but it had never been used in Hollywood films until we did On the Dark Night. Um, I had seen IMAX films, IMAX presentations in museums and become fascinated with the format as a kid and used the fact that I was doing a sequel to a film to negotiate with the studio to say, hey, let me, let me try using these cameras. Uh, the cameras are huge and unwieldy and very noisy. Uh, but the negative area is three times the size of regular 65 mil. Mm-hmm. So the film you've just seen um, is shot 70% on IMAX, and then the remaining 30%, which is most of the dialogue scenes where we needed to record sound, because IMAX cameras are very noisy. So we used uh, Panavision 65 mil 5 perf uh, film, which is what Lawrence of Arabia was shot on, or Hateful Eight. Um, and this print is made totally uh, photochemically and optically. So there's no digitization of the IMAX negative. Um, it was all done on an optical printer, uh, a photochem in Los Angeles. And we're going out with about 125 of these uh, 70 mil prints uh, all over the world. And, and why, why, when you, you, you talk about that and you talk about the optical nature of the film, mm. photochemical nature of the film, why is that important to you? Why, as a filmmaker, and for you as a filmmaker, why is that something that, that is meaningful and, and how do you use that in the process of shooting and, and making a film? I've spent a lot of time over the last few years really defending film, celluloid film, and really trying to articulate uh, coherent arguments for why it's so important to me and to other filmmakers who, who love it. Um, essentially, on a technical level, it comes down to it's a better analogy for the way the eye sees than video formats. So it has analog color. There's no banding of the color. It's not subject to any particular bit depth, like 10-bit or 12-bit color. It's analog color. The resolution's very, very high. Um, I mean, an IMAX film frame, it doesn't have an equivalent digital resolution because it's an analog format with a random grain structure. But it would be about 18K minimum or something. So it's just a, it's a whole different order of magnitude of what you can achieve in terms of how the eye sees. And so if you're making a film where you want the tone of the film to be such that you're sort of 
seeing the world the way you see it, not a heightened reality. Film's the best way to do that. Um, and I think one of the reasons it's been under such threat in the last you know, 10 years particularly is that a lot of what's driving the box office with the studios are films that don't require that naturalism. They, they tend to have a very predominantly CG sort of look. They tend to be patterned, I mean animation, CG animation has been a huge factor in the box office in the last 10 years. And so those things, they don't miss out. But when you want to make a film that looks like the world around us, films are the best tool for doing it. So you're about to open this movie all over the country. Uh, actually, there's screenings starting in IMAX tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening. Um, is it a gamble in a certain way? Is it, what kind of pressure do you feel bringing a movie like this out uh, this time of year on all these different formats, large screen, you know, wide screen? That's just a cruel question, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone just wants to see the filmmaker squirm, and quite rightly, uh, it, it, every film's a big gamble. Um, Truly, uh, so is this a bigger gamble? I don't, I don't know. I know that as a, as a film goer and as a film lover myself of large scale entertainment, I'm very, I'm very excited to see something new and different, but that will tick whatever those boxes need to be to qualify something for sort of entertainment, if you like, in the summer. Entertainment's a funny word to use in relation to a real life yeah. event, yeah. but at the same time, cinema is about all different forms of entertainment and the experience, the visceral experience, the sort of subjective view of an event that you don't want to go experience in real life, God yeah. forbid, yeah. but that you can get some sense of. Yeah. That's, that's a very important part of what large-scale filmmaking can do. As a movie fan myself, I, I highly encourage you, and I'm, I'm a big fan of this film. I, was, I had the good fortune to watch it in IMAX across the street twice now, and I highly recommend the experience of watching it the way you did now, and I watched most of it again with you here, but seeing what Chris is doing with the IMAX format at an IMAX theater, um, it's, a, it's, a tr it's a tremendous experience, and I do strongly recommend that you, you also see it in that format if you can. It really delivers. Let's talk about um, Dunkirk, and um, maybe for folks who may not have as much historical background, I think the movie gives you um, a tremendous amount of context, historical context, but what is this notion of Dunkirk spirit? Um, and what does that mean to a Brit? Well, Dunkirk is such a seminal event uh, in, in British culture, British history, that, that it entered into the culture as a concept, you know, the Dunkirk spirit, and it really means a pulling together in the face of adversity and just getting on with things together and, and making things happen. And, and obviously you've just seen the film so you understand the, the context of that. Um, but even in Britain, it's so long ago. Um, I mean, we grow up knowing this story in a sort of mythic, almost fairy tale simplification of it. Mm -hmm. It's so long ago now that I think even for British people, we're over there screening the film and talking about it. There's a lot that surprises people about the, the reality of what happened there. So the, the concept, to some extent, has outlived the specifics of the history. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was a responsibility to be sure that we were on firm ground in terms of our representation of that history, mm -hmm. because obviously as a blockbuster film, it will stand for, for a certain amount of time as, as a definitive account of it. Mm -hmm. And so as someone who grew up hearing the story, knowing the story, having this sort of mythic quality about this, uh, notion of Dunkirk spirit. When do you recall when the moment was that you 
that you decided that this was something you wanted to explore more deeply or when this was something that you wanted to um, explore on a, on a big screen? I mean, it, it's been a long-term evolution for me because as a storyteller, you're looking for a gap in the record. You're looking for a story that should have been told in modern films and hasn't been. Uh, and I think Dunkirk's one of the greatest stories in human history. So to me, there's a tremendous opportunity there. Um, as far as the specifics of how I wanted to go about it or what it meant to me, I would point to a trip that Emma, the producer on the film, and my wife uh, and myself made with a friend of ours who had a small sailboat and he wanted to make the crossing. This is about 20 years ago. He wanted to make the crossing to Dunkirk at about the same time of the year that the evacuation had taken place. And with this superficial knowledge of the story that we had, we quite frivolously really tried to make the crossing. And it was a very, very uh, difficult experience. It took much longer than it should have. It took us about 19 hours. The channel was extremely rough and it felt dangerous. It really was an unpleasant and difficult experience. And that was without people dropping bombs on us. You know, we weren't heading into a war zone. It's so your respect and your fascination with the people who actually got on those boats in 1940, knowing they were heading into that, that war zone, it's sort of unthinkably brave. And, and I think that's where the seeds of the idea of putting the audience on that boat, for me, came from. 20 years ago, you were early on, very early on in your filmmaking career. Mm -hmm. uh, you were at the Toronto Film Festival in 1998, I believe, with the following. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think so. So almost 20 years ago now. So long ago, I, I can't remember. Crazy. Yes, I think it was um, not I wonder if uh, at that stage of your life as, as, a, as an aspiring filmmaker 20 mm -hmm. years ago, um, what you were sort of aiming to do, hoping to do, can you recall sort of, you know, following uh, generated a lot of attention for you uh, in the late 90s. Um, did you, did you, what steps were you taking at that early stage or what were you sort of imagining as, as a potential, as, as you're thinking about a story like yeah. Dunkirk or other films? I, I mean, I was very fortunate in, in that by the time I was able to get anybody to look at following or get it into a festival, we started at the San Francisco Festival. Right, actually. San Francisco. And um, that was our sort of big breakthrough. I had already written the script for Memento oh. at that point and so I sort of had I knew exactly what it is I wanted to do next, mm -hmm. and it was an expansion. It was a bigger film, but still independent, still mm -hmm. small enough. Um, and so it was a great advantage to be able to show people following, which had structural similarities to the way it played with time, with mm -hmm. Memento, and indeed to, to Dunkirk, and, and sort of say, okay, this is what I've done, but I now want to do something on a slightly bigger scale. Mm -hmm. and so it was a good step up, and, and I wasn't really looking beyond that. I was very obsessed with getting that, that film done. Um, I want to pick up on that notion of time because it's something that, at least in the times that I've watched this movie, something that, that, that I'm thinking about a lot. And, you know, a, a director, a filmmaker, um, has the ability to control time. Mm. And in this movie, from the very earliest moments, and you could tell us at which moment in the film this happens, but I feel like that, that ticking, whether it's intended to be an exact ticking clock or just the notion of a ticking clock, begins very early yeah. on. And it begins from... The first, first frame, and it ends when he falls asleep on the train uh, with almost no gap. And it, it actually is derived from a recording I made of a, a watch they own that I had a particularly insistent ticking. And I sent it to Hans Zimmer, who's done the music, 
uh, along with his team and said, can you stop building rhythmic tracks out of this? Because the script was written according to certain musical principles really? to do with uh, approaches to music that can give you a sense of continuing momentum, uh, rising pitch. There's a thing called the shepherd tone. It's an audio illusion that we've used. Uh, David Julian, my composer on The Prestige, and I first started experimenting with it then. Mm -hmm. We've used it in sound effects, so the bat pod in The Dark Knight has an ascending engine note. It never downshifts. So it's an audio illusion whereby you create the feeling of continually rising pitch. And I wanted to try writing a script that obeyed those principles so that you braid together the three storylines mm. and they're continually rising in anxiety, if you like, or intensity. And so as one is peaking, the other one is starting to build and the other one is entering the last phase of it. Mm. You're looking at me strangely. It's I'm clearly, fascinated clearly overcomplicating it. No. But, the, uh, but what I wanted, the, the long and the short of, being of that being what I needed from hands was tracks that right as we got in the edit suite, we would lay out yeah. a tempo map and start fusing sound effects, music and, and picture in one very unified uh, rhythmic structure. I'm fascinated by the idea because um, the, feel, the feeling of watching the film and you know, people here are seeing it, probably almost everybody for the first time, that first experience is just that feeling of never quite being let go. And yeah. so that, that connects to what you're saying more technically. I didn't yes. know how to explain it, how, how, how to explain my response to the film yeah. technically, but, it, but it, I can understand it now when you talk about sort of the, the notion of that pitch continually growing. I mean, it almost feels like once the ticking starts and once the music starts, it almost feels like one long piece that just continues to yeah. build. Yeah. And that, that was very much the way the film was conceived. And so it had, I only wrote a 76 page script because I always knew the film had to be lean and stripped down. You can only sustain that for so long. Right. Um, and we wanted the language of suspense, which is the most visual of cinematic languages. So we were looking to the silent era. We were looking to the great suspense masters like Hitchcock and Clouseau uh, and their visual storytelling. What did they do that was interesting to you? Or what, what would you take from like a Clouseau or a Well, Hitchcock? Clouseau particularly, I mean, we screened a print of Wages of Fear for the crew. Uh, I remember at the end of it, I sort of turned around and half the crew looked very upset with me and baffled. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen Wages of Fear, it is a masterpiece, but it has a very bitter ending and kind of, um, I think they, they question the relevance of it slightly, but a lot of the key members completely got what it was on about because the thing about Wages of Fear is it's all about physical process, like a Bresson film as well. It's all about, you know, these spinning truck tires and the creaking wood structure that it's on and is it going to give way, is it not? And so you, you start to get this thing of you can create empathy for characters in film. And Hitchcock understood this better than anyone just by virtue of the physical situation. So you don't, you know, my feeling was, okay, you don't need characters who come on screen and through dialogue make the case for why you should care about them because of where they've come from or who they left at home or whatever. Just dive into, can they carry this guy on a stretcher across a plank without falling over like that? Mm -hmm. That's what you get from Clouseau and from Hitchcock, I think. Great stuff. Um, can you elaborate a little bit? You talked about it a moment ago and creating this continuously heightening sense of uh, suspense. In this case, we've got these three, um, these three locations. These three, you've got land for a week, sea for a day, and mm -hmm. air for an hour. Um, 
the notion of trying to um, connect these three timelines or these three time yeah. frames um, when you were right when you decided to pursue this as a, as a as a film and you're writing sort of in the early stages of writing when did you sort of how did you sort of come across this notion of of telling it in that in these kind of three different distinct strands well I, I plan the structure very carefully like when I wrote Memento I planned the structure very carefully before I wrote the script mm -hmm. and I think that's very important because you take a mathematical approach, a geometrical approach, you're drawing diagrams, you're doing all this sort of complicated stuff, but you then have to be the audience for the film. You've got to start at page one and give yourself a coherent experience. But the, the structure came about as a result of saying, I want to tell this in a very subjective way, in a very human scale way. I only want to see really what the characters are seeing who are involved. But for people who don't know the story particularly, you want to build up that larger picture. So how do you do that without cutting to politicians or generals in rooms with maps and pushing mm -hmm. symbols around and stuff? Um, and the way I chose to do that was to divide it into these multiple points of view that would interact, show you the same event from different points of view, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. And the timescales come about as a result of wanting to be able to, to cross-cut these points of view and reflect the different relative times in which they're taking place. So that that week of intense stress and intense boredom mixed together, cross-cutting with this one hour that a Spitfire pilot had above Dunkirk, that hour stretching to this massive experience that they're going through. Mm -hmm. That was really, really the idea. I'm, I'm fascinated by this notion also of you with a screenwriter sitting at a computer or however you write um, with also like geometric symbols and shapes. I wouldn't have thought about the writing process involving that kind of... I, everybody has their own weird way of, you know. Yours involves geometry. Mine involves geometry and diagrams and yes, I won't go any further than that. Everybody, <laughs> writing is a very private affair. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Spitfire. Um, you've filmed um, these these aerial sequences are again just so immersive, and, and you're filming this this aerial action in such a distinctive way, in a way that really, um, you know, uh, I can't imagine the, the idea of if you're shooting with IMAX. Many of these scenes are in the larger format IMAX. Yeah. Um, tell us about the research process and the structural process of of creating the ultimate impact we see on the screen from the air. Well, we wanted to be true to this notion of subjectivity. So we wanted to find a way to put the camera in the cockpit okay. and keep it there, not jump to the sort of German point of view, but, but stay you know, within the world of the, of the pilot. Um, we were able to source the real plane. So we had real Spitfires, we had a real Messerschmitt, we had real bomber. Um, we needed to find ways to get this enormous camera into the cockpit. And so Hoyte van Hoytemann, my director of photography, has an excellent engineering brain. He started working with IMAX and with Panavision to develop different lenses. And so an example of one of Hoyte's ideas is you can't fit the camera in this way. What if you turn it vertically, mount it behind the seat, and create a lens that has a right angle? So then you can put the lens where the head of the pilot would be. And uh, it's a brilliant solution, and, and it worked very well. Um, the other thing that... that when we looked at all of the different dogfights that have been done in films, right the way back to um, you know, Wings and Hell's Angels by way of Battle of Britain, Top Gun, you know, all of them, the thing that lets all of them down are the shots of the actors. Um, in one way or another, they're, they're artificial, 
because they're green screen and more modern films or to do with exposure balance, things like that. Um, my stunt coordinator, who is also a passionate student of aviation, Tom Struthers, he uh, came up with the idea of buying a, a Soviet-era Romanian plane called a Yak. It's about the same size and shape of a Spitfire, but we could buy it, own it, change it to look like a Spitfire, and then it has two cockpits. So the idea was we could mount the camera on the wing of the plane or the fuselage of the plane. A real pilot could fly from the back, and the actor could be in the front. And that way, we could put them in formation with the other planes and you know, really have them go through the action for real and get shots in camera like that. I have to look at my clock because I'm, I know that we have a limited amount of time. Okay, we're doing okay. We're gonna get to some questions from the audience in a minute. Um, when you were a kid, did you watch a lot of movies? Um, your oh, God, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Were there certain types of movies? movies? Oh, all, all sorts. I've just, I mean, movies have been everything to me in my whole life, really. Um, all, all sorts. I mean, the interesting thing is that when you look at, people will ask what filmmakers I'm interested by, and I'll sit and I'll talk about Bresson or Clouseau, or we'll talk about Nicholas Rogue. Mm -hmm. or, but the, the interesting thing about film is we all tend to come to film through Hollywood, through the blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Unlike literature, where you, everybody kind of finds their own route, and, and people don't necessarily come through John Grisham, you know, or whatever. Um, <laughs> In movies, you, you do, you come through yeah. those films. You, we do all sort of start, you know, when we're kids, we watch the mainstream movies. And then as we get older into adolescence and stuff, we start finding an interest in more varied things or more, more offbeat things. And, and for me, that means I have a lot of treasured memories of, you know, George Lucas's original Star Wars, for example, or the early Bond films, uh, or the 70s Bond films of my era. Um, you know, Blade Runner film. You know, these are these are all kind of seminal films to me. I couldn't help but thinking about the Lucas early Star Wars and some of the fight sequences here. Just oh, totally. Little I mean, moments. well, if you watch Battle of Britain, you know that Michael Caine was in. Yeah. You see cuts in that that I've never really asked George specifically, but there's there's things in that that are so close. Yeah. And it's Red Five and you know all that stuff. Um, we're sort of taking it back to <laughs> back where, to where it came from. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You mentioned Bond. Do you want, everybody says you want to make a Bond film. Uh, yeah, I mean, I... You look I, the part. I mean, I could see it. I, <laughs> exactly. I think they mean direct. I, the, the, uh, I grew up with that franchise. Anyone who's seen my other films knows how yeah. shamelessly I've ripped those films off over the years. <laughs> so, you know, at some point, I suppose I should repay the debt. But, you know, I, they... They're doing terrifically well without me, so <laughs> that's, that's fine. You um, go where you're needed, I suppose. Fair enough, fair there enough. There weren't enough World War II films, so, yeah. I mean, there's certainly, <laughs> there's certainly this idea that um, you have complete freedom to, to make whatever you want, or you can certainly talk about making whatever you want. You can walk in the door and have that conversation. Yes, I'm the Colonel Kurtz of mainstream filmmakers. Do you feel? Operating <laughs> out there. Uh, I think that, that idea is a bit of a, I mean, filmmaking is all intelligent compromise. It's all about, you know, particularly at this budget level, it's about a tension between the marketplace, the marketing, what you can do. You're, you're working within parameters, whatever level you're working with. I certainly enjoy, 
a very good relationship with a studio that I've worked with for a long time, and that's a huge advantage in terms of navigating the realities of, of studio filmmaking. Do you like VR? This, this feels like VR without a headset in certain ways. I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've referred to it in, in that way. Um, I prefer this, you know, I mean, I don't mean this isn't my film, but I, as in the big screen. Well, I, I think that cinema has an incredible, it's, it's just got this incredibly nimble adaptability. So you can be in this kind of first person visceral mode and then you can flip to a more objective discursive mode or narrative. There are just so many tools in the toolkit. Um, and so my feeling about movies and the reason I love movies is I don't think we've even scratched the surface of what's possible in movies. And every time you, you come to make a big film, you just hope to add some little thing to, to whatever the grammar is or the lexicon. Or, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, it's like with the bomb sound or something, you go, okay, that's something I put into movies that wasn't there before or whatever. You go, but some, some little, you know, some little tool that somebody else can then use or you can sort of advance it. But if you look at where films are now and you just compare the technical evolution of them, I mean, there's just no stopping them. They just go and they go and they go. And I'm not, you know, because I'm a defender of celluloid, it's, it's not because I'm against technological development in film. It's because that I, I know, and when you go to see the IMAX film print of this film, you start to understand, we just haven't mined what that incredible medium can do. And I just want to start doing that, you know. Certainly a very different experience um, doing that this weekend, seeing this movie in an IMAX format, um, by comparison, watching something at home on a big screen, you know, on Netflix or iTunes. Mm -hmm. um, do you watch movies on Netflix or iTunes? Do you watch movies in that environment as well? Not much, actually. I tend to, um, I've got a good digital projector and I watch Blu-rays on it because um, I like the additional content and everything, but also the, the resolution, you know, the quality is quite a bit better. Uh, and we're actually in the process of remastering our films in 4K HDR, which I think has huge potential as a, as a home format. So. Nice, very good. Um, I want to get to some questions from the audience and we have, uh, and there's a lot of questions from the audience. Uh, first of all, thank you. That was amazing. Um, I want to ask um, Dunkirk, very unfamiliar typically with most American audiences, and I was wondering what that conversation was like at Warner Brothers when you said, yeah, I want to make this big film about something most Americans have never heard of. I, yeah, I didn't pitch it like that. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I mean, the, the, the pitch is... The pitch is the story, you know, the pitch was the story. It, uh, my pitch was, it's one of the greatest stories in human history. My pitch was, there are so many Hollywood movies over the last 50 years that have their Dunkirk moment. It's just unacknowledged as to where it comes from. If you look at Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man, or if you look at Independence Day, these films, they all have this moment, and this is where it comes from. So that's really the pitch. And then the, the promise to the studio, which I've tried to deliver on is, we're gonna make this as visceral and exciting and spectacular an experience as possible. And hopefully that transcends cultural boundaries, national boundaries. All films these days have to work internationally. Um, and so it's a little bit more challenging when you're not talking about American culture, but you know, we, we, we like to think that the, the language of cinema is international. Okay, where are we? Right there. There. Thank you for your wonderful film. Um, I have a question about the casting. 
and um, uh, the way in which you structured a lot of classic, familiar, great uh, British character actors uh, in, in many key roles, but in particular, your casting of your, let's say, principles, if you could mm -hmm. speak about that for a moment. It was very important to me in taking on this historical reality that we not do the usual Hollywood thing of casting 30-year-olds as 19-year-olds. Um, it's an important thing, I think, to, to have in the film, that the way we still fight wars. We send our children to fight these wars, as Mark's character says. We send 18, 19, 20-year-olds off to, to fight, and so we wanted to find people of that age, and so we were looking at open casting calls, people who didn't have agents yet, people in drama school. I mean, Tom Glencarney, who plays Mark Rylance's son, dropped out of drama school to come and do the film. I gather they let him graduate based on the film, which is good. <laughs> so, but, uh, and Finn Whitehead, who plays what I consider the, the lead of the ensemble, uh, had really done nothing, no film work before. Uh, and that was very important, just to have these, these fresh faces. Uh, and really, we wanted faces that when the film starts, there's no expectation that this guy is going to take on the whole German army or win the day or whatever. You, you're just looking at this kid thinking, I don't want him to get killed. I want him, just, I want him to be okay. And that, that's what was important. We don't have a lot of time, so I want to quick questions, quick answers. We'll keep moving. Yes, stand up right there. My name is Tim Rooney. I'm a filmmaker from here from New York. Uh, I want to say it was an awesome movie, and thank you for coming down for this. My question today is that since you started with short films and you made your micro-budget film with following and you've made so many films since, what advice do you have for filmmakers who have made shorts and they're about to make that first leap to a feature film? What advice would you give those filmmakers today? Well, I think the only advice I've ever really been able to, to offer people starting out is sort of stick to your guns. You know, there'll be something, there is something distinctive that you want to get across. And generally that's the thing that is most challenged by the people you're trying to convince to let you do it. And I think the only thing to do is really, really stick to your guns and try and achieve something different, something unique, personal to your, your voice. If you let people you know, smooth off the rough edges too much, there won't be anything that you're bringing to the table. And that's what's important with your first work in particular. Let's go up here to the front. Thank you, Chris. The movie was excellent. Um, so, and as an entertainment, it was really tricky because it was like, you know, the phenomenon of war and it was really heavy. And um, I was wondering though, you're talking about subjective experiences. How did the people who were at Dunkirk react to your film when they saw, I mean, I assume some have seen it already. And well, I, I got to meet with um, some veterans while I was writing the script uh, and some of their experiences wound up incorporated into the film. Um, in particular, the moment where you see the, the soldier take his gear off and just try and swim out, either killing himself or trying to swim to a boat or swim all the way across the channel. That's a story that I was told by a veteran named Vic Viner, uh, who has since passed on. Um, we are at a point where this is not going to be living history for much longer. These veterans, they're in their late 90s. Um, we did a screening for about um, 12 of them a couple of weeks ago and standing in front of those guys about to show them my version of what they've been through was absolutely the most daunting professional experience I've, I've had. It was a very emotional screening. I don't want to speak for them, but it was a big relief when it was over and I think 
overwhelmingly, the, the feeling was they're very happy for their story to be more known across the world. We're almost out of time. Let's take one more down here. Hi, amazing film. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you about the idea of enemy in this film, because although we see their actions, they're sort of in the background. We don't see them, and they're also not referred to as German. So it's almost like an abstract idea of enemy. I was wondering if that was a conscious decision for you, or if you considered involving that more. I just could never remember those Germans. I was like, no. <laughs> um, very glib answer to a, a very good question, which is, the, for me, when I read about these first-hand experiences, what, these guys were not face-to-face -face with the enemy. The guys on the beach, the guys in the perimeter, eventually. But, but even then, it's not like it is usually in the movies. There's, there's this sense of you are hearing and feeling and seeing the effect of their weaponry. And there's a terrifying sense of them getting closer and closer, but you're not able to see them. And that is more, for me, more tense, more suspenseful. And I think once I decided that I never wanted to see them, I started to feel like, why talk about them? Why refer to them, their nationality, whatever? It's sort of irrelevant. This, this to me, is a survival story. And I want it to be as universal as possible. And so the specifics of the, the cultures involved um, the film doesn't really have the ability to encompass that. We're not dealing with that. We're just trying to deal with it from this very, very human perspective of, of survival in the moment. We're out of time. Um, Dunkirk opens in theaters all over the place, starting tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening. Thank you very much, Chris, for being here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Landline is a 90s set comedic drama about a family united by secrets and lies. The film again pairs writer-director Gillian Robespierre with obvious child star Jenny Slate, with new additions to the cast like Edie Falco, Abby Quinn, Jay Duplass, and John Turturro. Earlier this week, Slate and Quinn joined writer-director Gillian Robespierre and co-writer Elizabeth Holm for a Q&A following a sneak preview screening. Let's go to that now. Somehow, I'm gonna give you this microphone. Oh, and I'm oh my god, I'm so what? sorry. What just happened? <laughs> I just fell back. Hold this okay. What happened? Hello. <laughs> Congratulations. What a terrific movie, seriously. You guys did a great job. And I know you've been traveling the country, and I know you had a big thing last night, so. Thank you for bringing it to us here at Lincoln Center, and we'll just settle in and talk about it now. Yeah, no, we have been uh, in five cities in a short amount of time, but playing in New York as New Yorkers, you know, you're the best audience, always. Great. And very well dressed. Right? Well, I think maybe we'll um, start with Gillian Elizabeth and ask you two of you to talk about sort of the the collaborative writing process, uh, the, where the story began. Tell us about kind of the origins of the project and kind of the early conversations the two of you had that led to the movie we just saw. Yeah, it was a very therapeutic process. <laughs> um, we're born and raised New Yorkers, uh, grew up in the 90s. Um, we shared a similar experience where our parents uh, both you know, sat us down uh, the ripe old age of 17 and said that they were uh, getting a divorce. 
And we had another similar experience where it wasn't necessarily the end of the, the, the family. Um, mm -hmm. It sort of brought and bonded our older brothers closer to us and our fathers became uh, people who made mistakes, but uh, we saw them for the first time as uh, real humans and our mothers who we are very uh, obsessed and in love with in the deepest way um, became vulnerable women and not just these strong people telling us to, to write our college ep uh, you know, essays. <laughs> um, and it kind of started with just Liz and I talking. Yeah. Obvious Child changed our lives. We went to Sundance in 2014 and had the opportunity to screen it and, and sell it to a company called A24. And, um, Has everybody seen Obvious Child? <laughs> of course you have. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and Liz and I had day jobs at the time. We used our vacation days to go to Sundance. Um, <laughs> came back and went back to work, really. And then sold the, the landline idea to a company called Oddlot. Yeah. And we were able to quit our day jobs finally and uh, become full-time filmmakers and storytellers. And we always knew we wanted to make another movie with Jenny. Um, it, we all sort of came up together and... Um, our friendship off-screen grew, but also uh, the need to collaborate and mm -hmm. want to collaborate more with each other uh, just became stronger. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to push each other in a new direction, and creating uh, Dana was was to do that, yeah. and creating yeah. this family with you know multiple characters. Jenny was in every single frame of Obvious Child, yeah. except the end credits. <laughs> Poop shot her foot was in <laughs> the tip of her crock. Um, so this was a way to um, push ourselves as storytellers. Liz, do you remember, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the early stages of this, this project, the early stages of writing it? I'd love to hear your um, perspective as well. Yeah, I think, as Gillian alluded to, early stages were a lot of uh, late night pillow talk and, and right. wine and pajamas and hanging out and kind of um, talking to each other about our lives. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we, uh, I was also in the process of, uh, I was just got engaged and was, it was the summer before I was getting married and Gillian had just gotten married. And certainly for me, monogamy and, and, and marriage were things that I, more than questioned and you know and still uh, and like a questioning but practicing in in those fields and uh <laughs> and you know never thought i would get married um yeah. and connected as much with alan as i did dana as as i did ali as i did pat and yeah, i think for yeah. us you we really i think we've been every character in this movie <laughs> including the uh the floppy disk uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and poppy's cat yeah um so, you know, I think we wanted to tell a story about humans doing human things um, and see that experience from multiple perspectives. Uh, and it definitely helped me uh, get married, <laughs> among, <laughs> among, among other things. And, and um, yeah, I think, uh, as Gillian said, was somewhat therapeutic in... in working through stuff, working through... Yeah, st still working through it, but... Uh, yeah, for sure. It was, it was a total pleasure working with these women to figure this out. Is the process of putting it out there, if something that's so therapeutic, is the process of putting it out there um, difficult, or is it part of the therapy? 
like sharing. We sent links to, to every member of our family <laughs> long before we went to Sundance. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the goal also with, with this movie and, and with our other movie was to sort of start a conversation um, to make people feel a little bit less alone in their pain. Um, you know, if you're a young woman or man and you're struggling in your relationship and you mm -hmm. don't have a voice and you're trying to find mm -hmm. singularity, you're trying to find strength and grow with somebody, but you also feel stifled, um, mostly by yourself, but by them as well, or you're watching your parents' mm -hmm. relationship fall apart. And, um, you know, I think we're just trying to tell a version of this where it's not um, so isolating mm -hmm. and you can sort of relate to the, any character you want to. Um, thank you. Jenny, tell me how you met these two very talented women. Um, I met Gillian in 2009, I think. Yeah. Uh, she came to see a, a comedy show that I was doing in Williamsburg, and we had a friend of a friend in common, or a friend, yeah, a friend of a friend. Really, we were strangers. Um, <laughs> that's what that means. Um, and Gil had written the short film, the script for the short film of Obvious Child, but Donna Stern, that character, was not a comedian at that point. And I had never acted in anything before, but I, I and I love doing comedy, but I, I really only started to do it because I wanted to be an actress and I was so, like I had a, like a primal sense of being really turned off by the traditional ways that women, I, I guess, are sort of like shunted into the entertainment industry. I just like was like, I don't, I'm not, I felt like such a vulnerable creature, like going into uh, an unsheltered place. And I was just like, I, I had to like have a, you know, like a call or something. So anyway, I was up on stage um, and Gil saw me and I guess she wanted me to be with her. <laughs> So she asked our friend of a friend um, for my email and emailed me about the idea. And I said, yes, I will do this because you seem nice and I want to start to begin to act. And it obviously sent your life in a different direction. Or yeah. in a direction you hoped to go, but yeah, it accelerated I think, that. Yeah, it's a sort of like just the door opens just a little bit. You yeah. just hope like to get your... Like, foot in, just like try to get more, um, get more into that other side. And um, I did start to act after that, actually. It just sort of happened. I like really randomly um, got my first job on TV on a show called Bored to Death. And we, yeah, that show ruled. <laughs> I loved it. And um, from that show, got an agent. I didn't, even, I didn't have an agent either. Like it, it's a, almost a repeated process of continually having to prove that you're allowed to be somewhere. <laughs> and and also to myself, too, like continually. Even with this movie, it's like, oh, phew, they asked me back. Was there any doubt in your mind that they would? Come on. Uh, sure, I mean, not, not like fundamental doubts. Um, not like, <laughs> oh my God, I thought they were my best friends and it turns out they think I'm an asshole. Um, I don't think I'm, I'm delusional. Um, and I also I truly don't think I'm a difficult person to work with. Um, I don't, I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't, but um, I, lo I love working. Um, but yeah, I think you just can never assume to be included in someone's art. It's about how they're growing and changing. So maybe you might not belong in it and you can't take that personally.
What did you think when you read what, what, how early on did they tell you about what they were working on and how early on did you, did you read what was being written or was it when it was finished or? Well, they came to me and they were like, it, there's a lot of interest in us making another movie again. Mm -hmm. We have a general idea of a sort of comedy about divorce. Would you attach yourself to it? That, that was really what, what it was. But I also knew a lot about them as people, how they work on set, how they write, what their tastes are and their personal histories. So, I know they tend to draw from experience and and all of that, plus a general sense of want, wanting to integrate my personal relationships with my work, that was an immediate yes. And then they started to send me drafts mm -hmm. over the, I don't know, year and a half that they wrote the mm -hmm. script and um, I was delighted. I'm just, I'm just so delighted whenever an idea becomes a narrative. I think that's magical. It, it's just so magical. I, I really love what they do. Each of the characters in this movie are so strong and so great and so empathetic, but you, you, you just connect with them. Um, Abby, your character is really incredible. Congratulations Thank on your you. work. Um, I'd love to hear more about what, what, what you saw in this character. Tell us about, you know, kind of hearing about the project originally or reading it and what, what struck you about it sort of early on. Yeah, um, it was a pretty standard audition process. I was sent a script and audition sides, and, um, but before even reading like the tagline, I, I saw who was attached, and um, I had seen Obvious Child like two weeks before mm -hmm. on my computer in a coffee shop, and I loved it. <laughs> And um, <laughs> Gillian's like, what? A coffee shop, Abby? And no one Do wants to hear that, but that's on? cool. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, it was just, <laughs> I was just you didn't on have Amazon like an IMAX experience with it. What? Anyway, <laughs> did you have like noise canceling head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wasn't. I wasn't like blaring. Not earbuds. <laughs> it was no an buts. intimate experience, um, even though I was around people. But yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> I loved it, and I just, yeah, and I'd been a huge fan of Jenny's for a very long time, just as a person, and obviously I didn't know her personally, we were strangers, but I just loved what she was about, and I loved her work, and I really wanted to work with Gillian and Liz. Um, so yeah, and then I read the script, and the character was amazing. I, I thought um, it was going to be a really cool opportunity for me uh, to be this person, and it was a little scary at first because she comes off very strong. And, um, but I think what Gillian and Liz do very well is they're not worried about making their characters likable. We've talked a lot about that. And um, I think all of their characters are, they're just human and they're people and they make mistakes. And it doesn't really matter if a character is likable. I think it's about being relatable. And um, if you can find like a little bit of that in any character in any movie, I think that's what's important and powerful. So I totally found that in Allie, and I found it um, in all the characters. Maybe uh, Gillian and Liz, you could elaborate on that a little bit, the idea of likability and sure. likability versus <laughs> reality, maybe. Because yeah. these characters all feel so real. Thank you. Yeah, we, we wanted the whole movie to feel very lived in from the dialogue to the relationships within the family to the way their apartment looks. You know, everything needed a very warm, lived in, you know, New York City living. We're all on top of each other. And it's hard to escape your family when you're in a two-bedroom apartment and you need some peace. Um, 
but um, we hate that note when you, you get it, and you, you always get it um, when mm. you're writing, I feel like, female characters where they're coming off a little too harsh or a little too cold or strong, and, and at least a couple of times along the process, we, we had the note of um, this, this person needs to be more likable. And our response is um, to ourselves, and then we find a classier way to say it, <laughs> fuck <I'm> you. Like <laughs> <laughs> but then we say it, you know, we're more diplomatic on the notes call. Um, and, and that's because we feel like we're trying to create women who are um, dimensional. All of our characters, hopefully even the smaller characters, mm -hmm. like, you know, Jay Duplass's character and Finn's character, where he's not the classic Lothario. We wanted to create somebody who had, you know, different sides to his character. Um, so with all the, all the women in our stories, you know, they should be able to be um, in a crisis and, and lie, cheat, and steal without hating them yeah. um, because they're human. And um, one way to do that is to watch them fail a little bit mm -hmm. and struggle. And especially with Jenny's character, you know, she is somebody who's trying to be free in a relationship and be free within herself. And I think that's something that we all have and we all need to conquer some points in our, rela in our relationships, whether they're monogamous or you're in a long-term marriage or a new, mar you know, mm -hmm. new relationship. And watching somebody do that is, can be a little murky and you can feel a little icky, like they're making mistakes, but you don't have to like them every single frame of a movie. Good note. I like that. Um, I want to give our audience a chance to ask some questions. And do we have microphones, or am I repeating the question? Just tell me if anybody. I think I'm repeating the question, so I don't see anybody with microphones. Sometimes we do. Yes, right here. Yes, please. You. The set experience with two kick-ass women leading the way. Well, it's sort of a, here's the thing that I feel is that there are many things at play. And so Abby and I will have different experiences and different answers. <laughs> Abby just hated them. <laughs> I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, the first thing is that there's a personal relationship. And that um, is wonderful and specific because we're all sort of like similar ages and going through... Um, being women in this world now, um, there's a personal relationship there, just like if you are from the same country as someone and you're in a new land, you know, it's like, a, you know, there's a tie. Um, but I've been on sets before where there are, you know, more men than women and they've been peaceful and lovely because of people's dedication to equality and humanity. So I, I hate to gender it because the human experience is is human, that's you know what it is. Um, but I will say that obviously it feels very powerful to say these people forever have a piece of my heart and I have little pieces of theirs and we are in a thing together and we're part of a greater movement and we are speaking in a unique voice in order to empower ourselves and define ourselves and this is our like this is our house, and so that that does feel really, really special. And I haven't had it again yet in my um, 
working experience. I, I have also had experiences that, you know, I, I've just been like, oh, this is the absolute wrong place for me to be because the environment is it like an undisturbed environment of misogyny where it's just like, this is what it is, you know, and you're just like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> it isn't. So, you know, there, there is both. And I try very hard now to make sure that I don't work with people like that. I'm not really sure that I'll ever find another Gil and Liz. Not, I'm, not look, I'm not looking. <laughs> um, but my experience with Gil and Liz has made me at least set a standard really high. You don't have to be best friends with everybody, but you certainly don't have to work with people that in one way or another are interested in like fracking you for your power or abusing you, you know? That's what I have to say. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Abby, you want to riff on that? Um, yeah, I've actually, the first thing I ever did was an episode of Law and & Order, and um, that was directed by a man, but everything else that I have worked on, um, I've worked with female directors. So, but yeah, t like Jenny said, I don't like to gender it. Um, and But uh, this experience um, specifically, it felt like I was working with older sisters or like aunts and um, it was just... <laughs> Like, however you want to label it. Um, but it's... <laughs> Skeletons, ghosts, <laughs> mummies. Uh. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay. Anyway. But yeah, um, it felt like a family is what I meant to say. <laughs> um. It's just cool that Abby has really only worked with female directors. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. It's incredible. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Other than Dick Wolf on Law and Order. Yes. Let's take some more questions. Uh, where, let's see. We'll, we'll come back here in a minute, but I wanted to go back. There was I saw a hand back here, but it's hard to. Yes, go ahead, and then we'll come up here. Uh, question is about the the setting, 1994, mid 90s. Yeah, the uh, question about why we want to set in the 90s. Um, uh, as Gillian mentioned, we're both born and raised New Yorkers who grew up here in the 90s, and our parents split when we were teenagers. And um, it is, in many ways, a very personal story for both of us that uh, is rooted in that time. Um, but I think we also were looking for a way to tell a story about a family. Uh, connecting or not, or communicating or not, and and showing that um, without you know inserts of texts and DMs and uh, you know Facebook profiles and discovering things um, on Tinder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, not that Tinder discovery isn't a beautiful thing, um, <laughs> but I think we we wanted to show this very human family. Um, and, and wanted to do that without sort of the aid of all of the technology that is so rooted in, in the way we live now. Um, and I think, you know, mid-90s was really like the really last moment uh, before email and cell phones took over our lives and kind of changed the way that we connect. And um, it sort of felt like the last moment of innocence in our, in our families and, and in, maybe a grittier in New York, although like 
every generation of New Yorkers always thinks like their New York is the last New York, and it's always true. Um, <laughs> so I think for all those reasons, it felt uh, it felt right. And um, I think also growing up in in the '90s, divorce was so commonplace. I mean, for both of us, we realized like all our friends' parents got divorced, and ours were sort of like the last to go. And and um, maybe rather than make a movie about like old millennials or young Gen Xers like now dealing with um, questions about relationships and choices and connection, um, sort of going back and looking at like the root cause of like how, how we got there. Um, you know, being Allie and watching watching the, the family breakdown, watching the older sister kind of dilemma and, and where that takes you as to where we are now. Um, all of that just felt really meaty to us and um, really wanted to put Jenny in a sleeveless turtleneck and bad Levi's. And uh, she looks fucking great in them, so. It's not, I mean, that's generous. <laughs> You had a question up here. Hi. <laughs> question about the family, oh. depiction of a family. Um, did everybody click? And also just the fact that you look like sisters. <laughs> now, no. <laughs> but in the film. Yeah, you know what's good about shooting in New York? Another great thing about New York is that um, we had trailers on this movie. We didn't have trailers on our last movie. But... Um, because we were shooting on a, in a building with multiple floors, everyone was sort of trapped up there. Because <laughs> uh, you could go back down to your trailer, but it was actually more convenient to stay in this tiny apartment. And that was our first week of shooting. Um, on you know low-budget independent films, you don't get a lot of rehearsal time. You don't even really get to give the script to certain actors too early. But you know, luckily, Jenny had been reading it from day one, and... Um, we did a small half-day rehearsal with Jenny paired with Abby, and then we would pair Abby with John and John and Edie, and that, that was our only rehearsal. Most of it, the chemistry had to happen pretty much on screen, but a lot of it happened while they were waiting in between takes because ma making movies is, you know, very boring for <laughs> for um, long periods of time when you're lighting and, and doing all of that stuff. So they were jammed into this room. Um, AC was blasting, and they just were there. And, and Abby has a great story about sort of what how she dealt with being in a room with John and Edie for the first time, and I'll let her tell that. But I think um, Jenny uh, plays the older sister in this movie. She has an older sister and a younger sister, and I is such an open, warm human that she knew how to walk into uh, a room and sort of light it up and make everyone feel ready to speak. And I think she did that with Abby in a really organic way. It wasn't forceful. It was the same thing that I saw on the stage in 2009, this thoughtful, smart, hilarious storyteller who made the whole room feel like they were her sisters or her, a version of her. Mm. And that's a rare uh, quality, and she has it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it wasn't difficult at all. Um, I think because we all really wanted to be there and it was a small cast, um, it just felt like it clicked uh, 
really easily and, and fast. And um, yeah, and the story that Gillian was talking about, I just, um, <laughs> the <laughs> one of the first days of filming, we were in this small, I don't know if it was like supposed to be a bedroom or something, but it was tiny. And we were just all sitting in there and John was reading a newspaper and Edie was on her phone, like talking to her kids. And I was sitting in my chair and I just, I remember like telling myself not to do anything else. Like my phone was in my pocket and I, I had the impulse to grab it because no one was talking to me at the time. And I just felt like, you know, that's your impulse to, you know, when you're sitting in a room full of people and no one's talking. But I just made it a point to not do that in case that they wanted to talk to me at some point. I was just going to be, <laughs> I was just going to be like open and, and ready for them to talk to me. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. And they did. Yeah, and it worked. It, yeah. I got to know them and I got to know Jenny and yeah, it was a very nice experience. Question about how many drafts of the screenplay and also talk about maybe uh, including and expanding the number of characters compared to the previous yeah. film. We're, we're still writing the movie. Um, yeah, I think like 17,000. Um, no, I mean, you, have, you get like in our setup with Odd Lot, we had sort of like three formal drafts, but then there's a million in between that they never see that, that we're passing stuff back and forth and then after what's supposed to be the final, you're polishing until like right up until onset and then on the day in rehearsals, you're rewriting and, and trying to figure out what feels natural. So it was a, a an endless iterative process. Um, and then we're in the edit and we're rewriting in the edit by working off of somebody's looks or I, I think it like that is in many ways like my favorite stage of the writing process. You just get another shot at it um, and you're still figuring out the best way to tell that story. Um, the second question was was not about how many drafts, but about expanding the number of characters. Oh, expanding the number of characters. Um, yeah, I think from the very beginning of thinking about this movie, we we knew we wanted to tell a story about three women in one family, and that we wanted it to be more of an ensemble, and we wanted um, to really build a, a full and rich world um, where we got to see each of these characters in and out of their home. Um, and it was you know, a, a goal of ours from the outset. Um, but I think uh, it was a challenge, but it was one that we kind of set for ourselves and, and pushed each other on. And um, the cool thing about having so many different characters is like putting different combinations of them in a space or a moment together, they teach you so much about each other in the way that they relate, like the way, the conversation that Dana and her dad has versus the conversation that Allie and her dad has versus the conversation their dad has with Pat, the mother, like you learn, you get to learn so much about each person, the way they engage with somebody else. Um, so I think we just gave ourselves more space to kind of think about these humans and, and all of the different ways that they, you know, exist and think and feel, which was daunting, but also fun. Thank you. Uh, there was a woman here. Yes. Questions yeah. about the writing process and, and balancing and managing the rea writing about the reality. 
I think the memory is a tricky thing, and what you think happened actually didn't. I can give you just an example, and um, this isn't, uh, you know, about a conversation my parents had. I don't remember the conversations necessarily I had with my mom or dad at the moment. I just remember feelings um, and flashes of pictures of us in a car together, um, and the rest we really did make up. But one thing was I, I did rave a little bit in high school, just a little. I was more of a poser. I wasn't as cool as Allie. Um, but my memory of this rave that took place downtown called NASA at the shelter, I thought I was like sneaking in as uh, pretending I was an adult and I got away with it. I thought that um, everyone in there was doing that. And then it turns out through our production designer who got in touch with a real DJ from the time who used to throw the parties and make all the flyers, I found out it was an all-ages club. It was like going to a, a bat mitzvah <laughs> at night and there was no bar, no alcohol. And th my memory of it that I was like that I was living on the edge, but I was just going to like a rec center <laughs> with glow sticks. Um, but you know, it, so I, it was fun to recreate that and make myself look cooler. But the conversations in our movie are, are they stem from Liz and I talking about feelings and moments in our lives, and then we didn't, you know, have recorders in, in our homes and taking those feelings and fictionalizing them, turning them into characters. Mm -hmm. So um, hopefully, you know, that that's what all writers do, which is you start from your inner truth and then it, it just becomes something bigger than you and it's no longer just a diary entry. It's, they're real characters. Take a couple more. We'll go right there, and then we'll come up here. Yes. Question about finding the comedy in the emotion. Do you want to talk about that, Um, I just don't separate them. I guess that's the answer. I, I wish I... I don't have a... Um, I went to college for... I was an English major. I don't have, like, a process, <laughs> you know? Um, and um, I have a deep love for performance. So that is the number one for me. And the reason why I, what, what attracts me so much is that, um, that thing that is happening all at once. I just, I never have an experience in life where I say like, well, I'm, I'm angry, so like if a beautiful smell wafts by me, I'm going to like ignore it, you know? <laughs> it, it's, in fact, those are the weirdest things, you know? Like, like on, on the most, it's so insane on a beautiful day when something sad happens, you know? Like that mixture is what really, really lets you look at the sadness more, the juxtaposition, and um, I think it's actually less human to... Um, to have them all portioned out. I think of it as a beautiful blended thing and being able to be an actress feels like being able to step into watercolors that are moving around. And that's how it feels <laughs> to me. But I don't know. I'm on drugs sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. I never do drugs at work. I don't. I don't. <laughs> okay, we're we're almost out of time. There was some Oh, are we? We're almost out of time. Almost. 
Oh, you, we got the light? I'm kidding. Sorry. I like the watercolors moving around. That's what it feels like. I like that. I, I've had to, I've sort of started to adjust, just more and more, like, accept that point of view. That I don't, I don't, I don't have, like, I would like to be more of a studier, you know, um, when it comes to the script. Uh, but I have started to step more and in, more into that point of view of just describing it however it feels the most comfortable to me. And then letting myself be there, like, why, why else? It's so hard to get what you want. You should enjoy it in your style. <laughs> Question about sisters and siblings and whether there's any similarities in those relationships. I have a younger sister and two older brothers. Um, I don't, I was never as volatile with any of them ever. Um, but I definitely get where my character was coming from. And um, they're very far apart in age. And I, I think um, that was almost something that I could hold on to as to why they were so separate and far from each other emotionally. But yeah, I, I definitely understood the family dynamic. I wasn't reading the script being like, this would never happen. Because I, I it totally would, I think. So even though it's very aggressive at times. Yeah, I have a, I have two sisters and we have a very loving relationship. They're they're really shy. Um, this I think for Abby and I, this was very exciting because we both are close with our siblings and the idea that the, you know we would really be kind of for for the first half of the movie kind of like standing across the room and firing like precise shots at each other, just being like I fucking hope it hits. You know, is so intense and um, and charged and playful and um, yeah, to start as playmates in that way, I think also really like bonded us because Abby really brings it. Like, she's not at all like her character. I was saying this to her last night. She's the most gentle. I saw her fall asleep sitting up one time, <laughs> just like just sitting, just like. It's like, she's just so chill. Like, she's like the, the sweetest. And then you watch this movie and there's so much attitude and it's all created. It's all a creation. And that is like so cool to be a part of, especially watching it in someone. Uh, it's just, it's so, it's so exciting. So exciting. We had an early test screening actually with, um, in New York and one of the highest compliments we received was from an identical twin. She had an identical twin sister and she's like, that's me and my sister. Um, where you could be splashing around and being like bear cubs in a pool and then something just tweaks and switches and you can turn around and call your sister a cunt. <laughs> and it's just like, that is my relationship. Do you have a nanny cam in my house? And I felt like, cool, we did, we're not making a caricature of sisters um, or that bond. But Liz and I do not have sisters. We have older brothers. So I think we're really drawing on our sisterhood and our friendship as collaborators and storytellers, and sometimes we push each other in the writing room, um, never as far as Dana and Allie do. Um, but it, you know, I think there's when there's love and trust, sometimes you don't act your best. A movie. Cool place to end. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna stop there. Um, Fuck you. And it, <laughs> Thank you guys so much. This is great. An, in, an independent film, an independent film like Landline, um, 
relies on the support of the audience. It opens this weekend. Go see it again. Tell everybody you know. Please That's do. how more movies Please like this get it. made and how they get to make more movies together, hopefully. Um, and thank you for being here. Thank you to our guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.